Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by Marcy Dermansky Editorial Services. If you are a writer in need of editorial assistance, Go to MarcyDermansky.com for more information. If you have a novel in the works or a work of creative nonfiction or a collection of short stories, Marcy can help you get it into shape. She's an editor. She'll help you get your book better. You know what I'm talking about? MarcyDermansky.com for more information. She's an editor. She edits things. Let her help you edit your thing. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world. It's good to be with you. My guest today is Min Jin Lee. Her new novel is called Pachinko. It is critically acclaimed, available now from Grand Central Publishing. It also happens to be the official February selection of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Min Jin Lee was here last week, sat down with me. We talked. It was absolutely delightful. And her book is terrific. So I'm very pleased to get to share that conversation with you. Here she is, folks. This is Min Jin Lee. And her novel, one more time, is called Pachinko. I think you're worried about it because you're an intelligent person. I think that if you didn't worry about it, it's shallow idealism. You know? And, and I feel like there's, a, there's just a lot of anger. There's and a lot of anger. I think anger, I think anger is justified when it comes to injustice. It's, it's normal to be angry. Uh, it's natural to feel a sense of anger and indignation when you witness injustice. Sure. And it's great if that spurs you to action, but it's like, what if that's like that emotion is what's driving all of your action? And what if you don't take good care of it? Do you know what I'm saying? And also, how about if two people have a different idea of what's morally correct? Right. I mean, that's what's really terrifying. So like if people think that it's okay to bomb abortion clinics because they really believe they're in the right side of God... I think, no, I don't think that makes any sense at all. So obviously, the abortion clinic bomber and I disagree. Right. But we're probably in the same tent in terms of this idea that we believe in God. So 
within the same tent, you have all this ascension. And I find that to be very troubling. Um, it's also strange to think that most Christians self-professed have not read the Bible. No. And actually, if you read the Bible, it's very clear that most of the times, for example, all this homophobia. Yeah. If you look at how many lines there are in the Bible, there's like six, six verses you can probably find saying that there's problems with it. However, there's nothing, they speak nothing about um, gay marriage, nothing. But there's a lot about greed. I mean, you could probably find in the New Testament maybe a good 15% on greed and how you shouldn't exploit the poor. That's right. throughout the entire Bible. It's interesting that the people who have all this hatred towards people who have abortions or who might have gay marriage never talk about the violence of gossip. Right. That's very clear in the Bible. Like, the gossip is a terrible thing. And that um, exploiting the poor, not paying people fair, fair wages, that's a terrible thing. Yeah, like, the, the, what about the Christian left? Social justice. Social know? justice. I mean, <laughs> if you look at the movements of civil rights in this country, they came out of the churches. Because, you know, if you look at the film Selma recently, every one of those people who believed in civil disobedience and, and SNCC, they're actually Christians. So you were able to tolerate that kind of fear because you believe that you are right. And again, I tend to agree with them, but then this whole um, feeling as if you're justified by your sense of moral rightness, we do have to look at it with a clear lens because sometimes it can get very, very scary. Yeah. 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 It's, a, it's, you know, my hope is that like, however, tr you know, tumultuous these times are and however much uh, unrest there is that like something positive will be born from it. But I don't know if that's, there's no guarantee of that. You know, I did hear Francis Fukuyama at Stanford I'm, and I'm, I hope I'm not misquoting him is that he was kind of suggesting that with the Trump presidency, perhaps we can really test how democracy works in this country. Will the checks and balances actually work to prevent serious harm? And I thought that's sort of a out of the box thought. Yeah, it's like a stress test, like right. they did on the banks in uh, exactly. 2009 exactly. or whatever. Exactly. You know, but today the cover of the New York Times, they had all these cemeteries. Um, where the gravestones of Jewish people are toppled over. In St. Louis. Right. Yeah. I mean, clearly people think that this is okay. Yeah. That's this the is thing 2017. About, yeah, that kind of, a, the, that's, a, that, that's what's so dangerous about the erosion of civil discourse in the country and the enabling uh, and the empowerment of these uh, fringe groups. Uh, you know, elevating them gives a permission structure to... Uh, people with bad ideas. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know how you put the genie back in the bottle. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it seems like it's out. <laughs> yeah. But how do you get it back in? But maybe it was always out, but now they feel like it's okay to come outside. Well, that's what I mean. Hide, yeah. That's what I mean. It was, they sort of had it bottled up and now it's like, okay, well we can, we can come out and do our thing now because, uh, our guy is in charge and he seems to be simpatico with us. And, such a fucking mess. It is a fucking mess. <laughs> so I'm glad we settled that. <laughs> um, let's talk about let's talk about you uh, and your writing and your wonderful book. Um, congratulations! Oh, thank you. You spent 30 years nursing this. Yes, that's a long. I mean, I know. No, the, I need my head checked. Like, yeah. like, like, yeah, <laughs> like a decade, 12 years, 15 years. You hear, you know, for some of these longer gestational periods mm -hmm. for a novel, but 30 years is exceptionally long. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about uh, why it took so long and how it came to be? 
I think it took a really long time because I didn't think I had the chops for it. I start. I got the idea in '89. I started in '95. I wrote an entire draft based upon academic research, and that draft didn't work as a novel. It worked as a very accurate manuscript of thoughts, sort of in the pretext of a novel. But I knew because I'm a good reader, I was always a a reader first. And I think that that gave me a certain confidence of at least testing out whether or not it's a good book. And I knew that it was it didn't work. And there was a second manuscript I wrote. The first novel manuscript called Revival of the Senses was even worse than that other book. So, And that was the one that was rejected by everybody. Every single respectable publisher rejected Revival of the Senses. I could say at least they were respectable publishers. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of like all the good-looking guys didn't want to go out with you. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> that makes me feel better. <laughs> They're really appealing, but they didn't want to go out with you. But whatever. And then the second book was The Bachinko the 1.0. And then I wrote Free Foods for Millionaires after I read A House for Mr. Biswas by V.S. Naipaul. After I read that book, I thought, you know, I'm going to write about people from my community. And which, it's okay. which is in Queens. Yes, because I grew up in Elmhurst, Queens. And oh. I thought, I'm going to write about the Koreans who are from Elmhurst, Queens, who want to leave Elmhurst, Queens, and what happens. And I wanted to critique consumerism and capitalism and the American dream. So I decided, why don't I just try that? So that's what I wrote, Free Food for Millionaires. And then... And that worked. Yes. I, I think it did work. It was well-received. It sold well. and It's a great title. Thank you. And I think that I was happy with it because the thing that I was really trying to do was to also learn how to write in the third-person um, omniscient point of view, like in the 19th century novels that I had loved the most. Why, is, why is that? You love the 19th century social novel, right? I do, why? I do. Because I think I have a lot of thoughts about society. And for me, the 19th century novelist really tackled it through a community novel. I think I'm not that interested in just me. I'm really interested in the dynamic of you and me and this room and the city and this town of the child across the hall from us. I'm interested in all of our trajectories and how dynamically they work together. And I'm also interested in the social commentaries of you and me and the child over there. That's very important to me. And that's just the way I'm sort of designed. I think, I think everybody's really different. Like I love single point of view novels too, but the one that I wanted to write were, were these kind of, big social commentary books. I think it's because those are the first books that I really learned how to read. I mean, I'm not originally born in this country, so I learned how to read and write and speak really through Where books. were you born? Oh, in Korea. Okay. So I came when I was seven and a half. So I learned mostly how to read and write by reading old books that were available at my local library. And I think I went through them very quickly so I feel very comfortable in that world. I feel comfortable also with plot. I really love plot. You outline? I do. I outline. I write character profiles. All, I, all before you start? Or, or do you do it as you go? Kind of, you know? I don't do it exhaustively. I actually do it. And I, one of the things I think is very helpful for me, and when people ask me about outlining, I always say that people should um, not get too attached to things, to not be too meticulous and to be more open. So I might say, Brad and Min are in a room and they're talking to each other 
and they disagree about a painting. We have conflict, we have characters, we have setting. That's all I need to know. Right. And then I start writing. But then we could be Brad and Min agree about the painting, but then they, they dis- disagree about what to have for dinner. But there's always some sort of conflict. And you can and you can deviate from the outline. Yeah, because I didn't spend that much time on. I mean, it could, I kind of think back of the cocktail napkin is a way to go. Yeah. And erasing is good. And never buying terribly expensive paper or beautiful journals. I kind of think... Or nice pens. Yeah. I just think all that stuff will just make you feel really self-conscious. Right. So I think a lot of times I also tell myself that no one's going to read it anyway. So what does it matter? And I try to keep a low overhead. That helps. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature... I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So you you wrote how many drafts of this? Three? A pachinko? Yeah. Full drafts? Yeah. Oh, gosh. A dozen. A dozen. Do- but, uh, yeah. But uh, in terms of like a true, truly a different draft, three. Three. But then when I, when I finally hit the draft, I had to write them over and over again because I'm constantly revising. And you went to... You moved to Japan. You lived abroad mm-hmm. for a few years. From 2007 to 2011. And that's where you wrote this or wrote yes. the book that we're now, yes. that's now out on, on exactly. shelves. So then that's when I wrote the story draft. That's correct. So I guess I think of it as, um, let's say there was a novel about us. And then I thought, oh, it's a novel about Brad and you keep You keep talking about this. Is this going to happen? <laughs> you never know. <laughs> I would be very flattered, I right. got to say. It'd be Brad and us and our listener, right? <laughs> <laughs> Jane. So Jane, Brad, and Mint were in this novel, and let's say we had the story, and it was really about, let's say, ambition. We, we wrote a novel about ambition. That was the big theme that I was really trying to tackle. And let's say we were also wrote about failure, because it's something that I feel very intimately comfortable with. <laughs> <laughs> you, you and me both. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. Well, I think that's just part of being a writer. I, I don't really even understand people who are very successful very it's, quickly. It's part of being a human in some way, somehow. But writing, yeah. I mean, especially, yeah. It's, there's something, uh, is operatic too strong of a word <laughs> about the no, I think failure it's of writing? I think operatic is actually very correct. I like opera, but let's say there's this book about Brad, Jane, and men, and we're writing about ambition and failure. We wrote that draft. And then afterwards I look at it and I think, you know, there's something really missing. And I go, oh yes, Frank is missing. Your dad is missing. Big Frank. Big Frank is missing. All five <laughs> foot seven of him. 
And then I think the story draft has to change because if, if Frank's story's in it, then all of a sudden it becomes different. I should say here that my dad uh, made a special point of telling me how much he loved Pachinko. Oh, thank you, Mr. Listy. Um, <laughs> I owe you a hug. <laughs> um, so that 2.0 where we add Frank would automatically rip the seams off right. that draft. It's like a house of cards. Right. You pull that card in, it's just like, oh. It's gone. It's gone. What I try to do is to not get too attached to 1.0. I think that's where writers get really um, depressed. And believe me, I was despondent when I realized that the draft that I had didn't work. Yeah, so let's talk about this because yeah. this is a very... Despondency, dr- it, sure. Yeah, it's a, dr- it's a dramatic moment. You've, yeah. written, you've written an entire draft mm-hmm. of a novel, mm-hmm. which in and of itself is a huge undertaking. Sure. A lot of time and energy... Um, and I've lot. given up a lot of earning power and yeah, status, have, and people have, have laughed at me basically because I made a really foolish decision. And you have a lot of hope invested. There's just something. There's a, there's an eternal hope that goes into writing a book. I don't care how much of a realist you are. Um, you, you know, somewhere in the back of your mind, you're always hoping that it's going to connect or that it's going to be. Um, that Frank um, will like it. That yeah, that Frank is going to love it, or that it's going to be the very very. Um, I don't know the best that you can do. I don't even know how to talk about it, but you know what I'm saying. And then you get to well, a point where, well, because we're readers, what you're saying is you want to believe that you have a reader who wanted that book because it's not just our wish to write that book because we could keep a diary and never have any hope. We could, could actually hope that it's private, but it's not. We're writing a manuscript and we're hoping that there is a reader and we're hoping that there's a gentle, loving reader who actually cares and feels moved by the story and entertained and perhaps has some experience of catharsis. That's really the hope. Yeah. And when you get it, you're kind of thinking, all right, bingo, you know, awesome. But it's sort of out of the reach for most people. So I do think what's also helpful is to manage my expectations. I manage my expectations a lot just because I've had so much delay. What do you mean by that? Um, you published your first book when you were 37, right? Yeah. That's not terribly late. It's not terribly late. It's not. But I also left my legal job when I was 25. You were a lawyer. I was a lawyer. You I was a well-paid lo- lawyer. And I was very good at what I do because I'm very neurotic. <laughs> <laughs> See, it pays off, people. Yes. Yes. Being neurotic <laughs> makes you a very good lawyer because I can worry about everything. <laughs> yeah. Detail-oriented. Yeah, totally. I, you know checked everything and I did all my research and I did all the due diligence that people who are powerful don't want to do. So I was actually the right person for that job. And then I thought that I would leave it because I had this illness for a long time, which I don't have anymore. And I thought that I would spend my time doing something that I thought was really important. And I have to tell you that the, the crazy part about working on a book for almost 30 years, it was so informed by being a person who had an illness. You had a liver disease. I had a liver disease for over 20 years and it got really, really bad. I had very serious cirrhosis and I had all these treatments, but I think... Did you ever come close to death? Yeah. They said that I was going to die and I would have, or I'd have to get a liver transplant and it's very difficult if you're a chronic hepatitis B carrier because you're not a good candidate. You're not a priority candidate for a liver transplant. Does it like it won't take if you do get one? Is that it? Or I think there's such a shortage of the, the organs right. that people who have it, this the status that I had, aren't considered the priority. They were not first in the list. Yeah. So we tried this interferon B and it worked. And the process of taking the medication is very like chemo and it's just horrible. 
but it did work for me and I'm very well. So that's okay. What does interferon be? It's a a shot that you give yourself every day for six months. Okay. I don't even know. Is it? You just kind of go and then it's like insulin. Your your hair falls out. You vomit all the time. You have diarrhea. You can't go out. You, uh, you can't really move because you have no energy. Oh God. But it gets rid of the disease. It got rid of for me, but my doctor, Dr. McGunn said it's incredibly rare. So I was very fortunate. But the illness did make me think a lot about death at a very early age. And I think that normally I wouldn't have... I'm not a very gloomy person. I don't think I would have been looking for yeah, like... you don't strike me. You are wearing black. Yeah, I, I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's slimming, Brad. <laughs> I'm, hey, look at me. <laughs> this is what women do. We're both, we're, we're both wearing black, just so yeah. you... Uh, um, but no, but so what? let's talk about that because that's an interesting perspective. You spent a good portion of your youth thinking you didn't have long to live. They told me I wouldn't. Like I went to college and they, and, um, the doctor at Yale New Haven hospital actually said that you will likely get cancer in your early twenties. So when I got really, really sick, when I was a lawyer, I thought, Oh, I have to rethink what I do with my time. And I think that because I'm a very, I'm very stubborn about whatever I set out to do, obviously. <laughs> I can say that now <laughs> with great satisfaction. Haha. I, I think I would have stayed a lawyer because I think it was so embarrassing. My father had paid a lot of money for me to go to law school and it came at great sacrifice to him. And I think that I would have thought, you know, it's not such a terrible life. It's not cold face. Like you go to the office and you do some work and there could be worse things in the world. You get paid well. You get paid really well for somebody who has almost no knowledge really except neurosis. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you really get paid at 24. What is it back then? It was $83,000, which is like for me an ungodly amount of money. Yeah. And you never even had time to spend it. Like you spent it mostly on dry cleaning because you just had to change your clothes and you didn't have time to do your own wash kind of thing. Um, and I would go to work and I thought it's not so terrible, but then I thought, well, do I want to die my desk? Not you know, this desk. Right. <laughs> not this desk. <laughs> I'll die in another desk. <laughs> so I thought that I would learn how to write a novel and I didn't think it'd be very difficult because I had been a good student. And that was my arrogance. Like writing novels, not like learning how to write a senior thesis. Very different. So you had to have an apprenticeship just like everybody else. You yes. You, you were just going to seamlessly transition. You had to go in and learn. I thought I was going to seamlessly transition, and boy, did I get my ass kicked. But you had a clarifying moment. Um, you know, you must feel really confident in the decision because it was made in that kind of crucible, like emotionally. Like, if you don't think you have very much time, and you're saying to yourself, well, the clock's ticking. I should be doing something that I really love to do. What do I love to do? Mm-hmm. And you arrive at this. I don't know. That seems like firm ground or firmer ground than most people would have. I think you're right. I think you're right. So in a way, I don't want to sound like a Pollyanna, but illness did help me to make a very tough decision. I think what's interesting about most people in advanced countries, first world countries like America, is we actually have quite a lot of choices of what we do with our time. And as a matter of fact, it's overwhelming. Like I think most undergraduates in college are overwhelmed by 4,000 classes and 36 credits. It's like, I'm, how I'm, do you choose? I'm overwhelmed at the grocery store by how many different salsas there are. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's Yeah, like, that's a real concern. Why I do, do we need this I know, much? 82 <laughs> hot sauces. You're going, I do want to try them all. <laughs> There's not enough time. There's not, there's not enough like hot dogs. <laughs> it's crazy. So you make this decision, you apprentice for what a decade. 
or, yeah, or so. Definitely. And then you publish Free Food for Millionaires. Yep. And then you write two drafts of Pachinko. Mm-hmm. And at what we were we were getting to this and I want to talk about the moment at which you realized that the draft you had, the second draft, wasn't right. Mm-hmm. And you had to blow it up. Yep. And you have to be you have to be pretty cold blooded. You know, you have to be willing to say this isn't right. I'm going to do whatever it takes to make it right. And if that means I've got to tear it down again, I got to tear it down. But emotionally, that sucks, right? I mean, did you have moments? I was so depressed. I was so depressed and despondent. And I felt like such a fool because I was not, I wasn't young. Like I was like 42 or 43. So it's not old, but it's not young. Yeah. And at one point we were really concerned about my husband's job and he's the one who had health insurance. And of course, like for me, I care a lot about health insurance. So I applied for a part-time creative writing teaching job for a high school, part-time, just for the health insurance. And they didn't call me back. And the person who got the job, very, very qualified young man, he has a PhD from Columbia. And I thought, oh, that's who I'm competing against. And also I'm 42 and he's like 27. And I remember thinking, not that I deserved it. He just definitely deserved it. He actually spent way more training than I did formally with degrees and imprimaturs that said he's qualified. I felt so stupid because I thought, what can I do now? What's going to allow me to have this little quiet life? And I wasn't asking for a lot, but um, that really checked me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's tough. And, uh, you make a lot of sacrifices to be a writer. Um, and it's a gamble, you know, <laughs> there's I lot... don't, I don't advise it for a lot of people. I kind of think if you feel like you have to do it, you should do it. And if you feel like you've got these stories to tell, you should definitely do it. However, the idea that you'll make money from writing, that's preposterous. Like I know a lot of writers who are very, very successful, capital S all caps. Award-winning. Award-winning. Major, major writers. People, I, I know people who write only in magazines like The New Yorker or The Atlantic, and they can barely scrape by. So... What, 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 the, what is that? I know it's, it's technology. always... I know it's technology. It's, it's, always, it's always been <laughs> thus. I don't mean to say that there was ever a time when it was easy to be a writer, uh-huh. but there was a time, mid, like early to mid-20th century, where you could like make a, a good living and like support a family writing short stories. Yes. That's not false. Like, I guess this was pre-television, you know? So maybe that was where, that was like the equivalent of being a TV writer uh, or whatever, where you can make some money. But it just seems incredible to me that there wouldn't be a way for people that, that good to make a buck doing this. You know, I guess there's just not a market. I don't understand. Well, I think it's technology. We have experienced an enormous disruption where content is expected to be free. Um, ads can't pay for a lot of things. So there used to be a time when, when I first started, like in 2007 or 2008, I got solicitations or pitch. I, I was pitched to by some fancy magazines and I was paid $2 and 50 cents a word. And now I'm writing for very, like I have some very prominent publications coming up and I think for maybe 2000 words, I'll be paid $300. God. So after taxes, that's like 200 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll probably spend two weeks on that piece. Yeah. At least. 
And I'll be really thinking about it all the time. Because it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And I really want to do a good job. And I want to honor the writers that I'm writing about. And But it's almost like community service. Yeah. So I think that writers have to almost... like I, I feel very strongly that I support other writers. Other writers support me. And we kind of... I mean, the ones who are really serious. If we're really serious, we have to watch out for each other. Um, but... It's really technology. It's it's expectation of free content. That's really the way the internet works. Right. Fucking technology. <laughs> We've got to figure out how to flip this. Well, I mean, what really if everyone good. just decided, what if everyone just decided like, no, we're not going to, what if we unionized and said, we're not going to give away our content. It's not going to happen. Like Jaron Lanier has written a really wonderful book about this idea that all these artists, we we're giving it all away because we don't have a choice. Yeah. And giving it away, like on Twitter, like there's a lot of, you know, people are just tweeting all their brilliant lines and Twitter's the one benefiting from it. Yeah. And also we're giving away a lot of our personal data. Yeah. (laughs) Like all of our likes Uh, and dislikes. Yes. Like I met this uh, forecaster and he was saying that just by the contents of your refrigerator, I can pretty much tell you how you vote, how often you have sex, who you like, who your friends are how often you eat at a certain restaurant, all based upon your consumer products. And I thought, that makes sense. Oh my gosh, I have to hide my organic granola. You I know? was going to say, <laughs> uh, that's not kale. I, I don't know. have kale. Um, so how do you keep going writing this book? It's a 30 year process. It, mm-hmm. I mean, the story dawned on you back when you were in college. Yeah, when I was 19. And, and just to give people like a broad overview, I mean, you should probably do it uh, more so than I, but it's about the Korean diaspora. That's right. Uh, which, but you know, mea culpa, like I didn't Nobody fully, knows. I didn't realize it's never taught. Yeah. So talk a little bit about like broadly, like the genesis of the book all the way back when you were in college at Yale. Is yes. It? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I was 19 years old and I was a history major and I attended a lecture instead of going to class and it featured an American missionary who works with the Korean Japanese population in Osaka. And that's when I learned about the history and, and just in a very, very brief way, the Koreans went to Japan in 1910 and they stayed there. Some went back because Japan annexed Korea in 1910 through world. And then that lasted through the end of world war two. Absolutely. Even after the Pacific war and world war two, because in this whole other theater of war, because I think most Westerners are pretty familiar with world war two, but they don't really know what happened in the Pacific. And it's because Japan was, um, an imperial power. They really wanted to rival the West and they started taking over and they believe very strongly. And I don't, I'm not pro-Japan being imperialistic, but I understand their logic. Their logic is if we want to be an important Asian power, we're going to have to just basically take over all these places like Singapore, the Philippines, Taiwan, Korea, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so Koreans went to Japan as economic migrants or as forced laborers, and they have a long history in this country. And one of the really tragic things is that the immigration laws kept on changing during the 100 years, and they were... They were and they are currently very discriminated against socially, legally, and culturally. Still. Oh, absolutely. Still. And so you say that you're at this lecture, you're learning about this for the first time. And I thought it was okay. Like, I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm 19 and I know everything. And, you know, <laughs> tell me another sad story, right? <laughs> I really had a little bit of that chip in my shoulder because I thought I was so sophisticated. But that story totally got me. So... He then told us a little story about a 13-year-old boy who climbed up in his parish, who climbed up to the top of his apartment building, and he leapt to his death. His parents 
went through his things and they found his middle school yearbook and the middle school yearbook his classmates had written go back to where you belong i hate you you smell like garlic and kimchi and they wrote the words die 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 and that story changed my life that story took over everything i sort of knew and i don't know why it was so important to me then and even now i still struggle with what made me so upset but i think one of the dominant things is that it was really hard for me to understand that an entire country can create a social norm in which other 13-year-olds could be so hateful to a child for his ethnic background and that was so disturbing to me because i'm a korean immigrant and i felt i certainly didn't have a perfect childhood but I felt really normal and welcome in New York and in Queens. And I had friends from all different backgrounds and I didn't know what whiteness was. Like I really didn't until I went to college. Until I went to Yale, I didn't know what a white person was. I was sort of the same. I mean, not not the same, but the same. There was a naivete to my upbringing that like I had a big awakening when I got to college about a lot of things. I guess maybe that happens to people, but uh, I don't know. I was sort of sweetly naive about so much. <laughs> yeah. And I think I liked it. I did too. It was great. Like my friends were Irish or Polish or Catholic, or there was like this big silly term in, even in the boroughs now in New York, when people call you Spanish and they don't mean from Spain, they mean Latino, but because you speak Spanish, they'll say he's Puerto Rican, you know, he's Spanish or he's Dominican. He's Spanish. It's a total misnomer. But everybody in the boroughs kind of like use that. So I grew up that way. Most of my teachers were, were Jewish. But because there's so many Jewish people in New York, like I knew the difference between Sephardic and Ashkenazi. Like there were so many different tribes. And we were all cool with it. Like you ride the subway every single day and you wonder like why there isn't a war. Because theoretically, there are people on this train who should be hating each other. Right. But they don't. Um and then I went to college and I heard about this and I thought, wow, this is just so shocking to me. And then in, I, I graduated as a history major and I went to law school because it seemed like the right thing to do. And then I practiced for two years and then it led me into this rabbit hole. And then now here we are. Here we are. Now you emerged. <laughs> I'm in beautiful Los Angeles with Brad. <laughs> so talk about uh, the despair a little bit more, you know, and the failure and what keeps you going? I think, gosh, it's so hard because there'd be these really stupid moments when I would feel so foolish and I feel so ashamed. And it would often happen when I, like when you least expect it, like I would go to some event with my husband and I would meet other people who are very accomplished. And in New York, there's so many accomplished people in so many different fields. And they right. can't help being glittering and uh, appealing. Yeah. And you want to be around their radius. And <laughs> I would go to these things and someone would ask you, so what do you do? And I would say, well, I'm working on a book. And they would say, oh, what kind of book? Have I seen it? And of course, like, no, they haven't seen it. And then they would say things like, well, I don't read fiction. So I would just kind of retreat to the bathroom and just have a good cry and come out. Or they'll say like, I'm going to write a book one day. 
I get that all the time. <laughs> I get that all the time. And Annie Diller actually said something really good about that. She said, um, some doctor had said that to her and she said, Oh, well, you know, I'm going to take up brain surgery this summer. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I was like, go Annie. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you know, yeah. And so it, I, I totally relate with that, you know, where you're, especially when you're like in the, in the throes of a project and it's maybe not going well, or you don't quite know if it's going to pan out, then you got to talk about it and you're at some party or you're at some social event. You're talking to all these people who seem to have like such firm ground under their feet. They know what they're doing. They're making lots of money. And you're like, what the fuck am I doing with my life? You I know, know. <laughs> I know. But you know, it's really interesting is that whenever those things happen, I always ask myself, well, what was bothering you? And I'll, and I'll realize, oh, it's because I let my ego get in the way about status yeah. or about money right. or about beauty or about youth. All those, I mean, I mean we are readers and we're, we can think in themes. So it's very helpful. <laughs> so I'll ask myself, what was bothering you? And then it'll be one of those funny themes that writers write about. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, one, I could use it. And if I'm really brave, I should use it because we all want to know what that means. And then secondly, I also think about the fact that what do I really care about? And I think if the people who know me respect me, and if I'm a good person, if dogs and children like me, <laughs> you think it's funny, but it's true. Like, I think dogs and children always like me. You know what? That's something. Yeah. So that's, that's what I mean by managing expectations in a way. Because at some point I had to say, I'm not going to get this now. Maybe one day. But it's a long shot. It's kind of like Powerball. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm not I, above buying a Powerball uh, ticket. I'm not above, I, <laughs> but I think getting a book published is easier than Powerball. That's true. That's true. Statistically, statistically, that's true. <laughs> and if you really have a story to say, to tell, and if you tell the story that only you can tell, that I think you have a very, very good shot at being published. I think what happens sometimes, because we're readers and because we're social creatures, we have all these antennas and feelers out. And what I hear from a lot of writers and students is how they seem to be market testing things. And I kind of think, and as my agent has said, that could be a great idea, but execution is totally a different thing. Right. Right. It's, it's all about the execution. And so it's yeah. kind of like the guy at the cocktail party says, I'm going to write a book this summer. And, I, and you kind of think, okay, yeah, be good, my guest. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> and, and people do have really good stories. Sometimes the people at parties who tell the best stories aren't necessarily going to be good writers. And I've been to writing classes. I took so many writing classes at like basements and stuff. And sometimes the people who write the best sentences don't necessarily have the best stories. It's like, or they might just flame out. So I kind of think, okay, maybe it's all about persistence. Persistence. Are you really disciplined? Um, I'm pretty good at saying no to things that are bad for me. In that sense, I'm disciplined. Like what? I don't drink because I have this liver disease. Well, yeah. Um, I don't. I don't hang out with people who make me feel bad. That takes discipline too. Okay, so what does that mean? People who don't encourage you to be fully yourself. I think people who make you second guess a lot, I think that's harmful to your life and to your growth. Yeah. 
<laughs> and it does take discipline to say, I will not do this. I will not go there. I will... Because you're protecting yourself. And I did hear this once where I think Nicole Kidman was being given advice by the director who did the piano. I can't remember her name. But this Australian director told her, you have to protect your talent. And even if people aren't even telling you that you have talent, I do think you have to protect that creative part of you. Yeah. And from I mean, Are you talking about world. people like who, who are friends, who are friends, but just don't have the right energy? Are you talking about like really toxic people? Like, do you know what I'm All saying? All of it. The whole thing. I have a very quiet life. I don't know that many. Um, Which is kind of a prerequisite for a literary life. Like, you can't... I don't know how people... I guess there are certain writers who are, like, out on the town every night and, you know... you know, They don't write that much. Do they? Yeah. I mean, I mean there are a few. No. I, know, I think of, like, Christopher Hitchens or what. I always feel like he was always doing stuff and then somehow, He's like... He's dead. I know. <laughs> <laughs> See, and it killed him. See, and it killed him. Uh, actually, I don't know what killed him. I, I did hear that he drank a lot. Oh, yeah. He drank a ton and smoked. Yeah. He, you know, he died I mean, of... I'm sad that he's gone. He's a very bright mind. Yeah. I, um, but I mean, just that type of writer who's like a man about town or woman about town. And like, I don't know how people do that. I feel like you sort of have to be yeah. more retiring. I think, yeah, I think you have to be around more people who are gentle. So how many, how many close friendships do you have? I have a lot of friends that I really love that I don't see very much. Me too. I don't go out very much. Me neither. Yeah. And I like. And I feel comfortable around books. But you seem so friendly and lovely and I love fun people. to be around. Yeah, me oh, too. Oh, thank you very much. I like people too. <laughs> what is this? Is this, is this like fundamental to the, the nature of uh, the writerly personality? Is this just what the work requires? Or is this maybe speaking to broader trends in our world? Um, you know, with people being sort of, you know, we don't call each other on the phone anymore. We text. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like yeah. technology removing us from one another. People, you know, in Los Angeles, you're in your car commuting. I don't know. I guess people who have really social jobs where they're in offices and inter interacting all day long, it would make more sense to kind of go home and just cocoon. But Also, I think that we're overwhelmed by the information that we get all the time. Yeah. Like, it used to be like, let's say you could read three newspapers, and even then that wasn't that much information. Now I feel responsible for knowing so much more about the world because all this information is out there. I, I can't deal with it. It's like a fire hose, and I go, whoa. Yeah. I just need, like, a pitcher of water. <laughs> well, and, I, you know, I've shut down. Um, I keep talking about this on the show. I hope it doesn't get on people's nerves, but, like, I used to be like a super high information. I used to be on a super high information diet, like just taking it all in as a feeling of like civic duty and interest. Um, but then started to just feel uh, like I could feel it affecting me health wise. Yeah. Like it's very stressful. It's stressful. And I've had conversations via text with friends in recent weeks, like post inauguration, especially where I feel like certain friends of mine who have continued to sort of like drink from the fire hose, um, I can sense. They sound rabid. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of anger in people. Well, and because tension. they have a right to be angry and tense. However, I don't know how constructive it is. Exactly. That's what I'm, that's what I'm questioning. But then it's like the answer isn't to just turn it off, turn off. Like, like it's I've moderate. Like yeah. it's somehow moderate. Like you just need that pitcher of water. You have to have it. Right. And we should also put out the things that are good, but it's too much. And 
Also, you and I know from media that those stories are designed to make us anxious and for us to stay on the page because it's not just eyeballs that are counting. They're also studying how long you stay on a site. So those are the metrics that are being used for all these media companies. So they have to make you worry because fear is a great way to make somebody stay on a page. Right. Bastards. They are they are bastards. I mean, I don't think they mean well for us. Like sometimes like my son and I used to have this conversation, he would say, Well, I want to watch this and I go, you know, you can. You could definitely watch it later, but that person on TV does not care about you. They don't care about you. Right. And it sounded like such a mean thing to say. But what I was trying to explain is you can control that information on your time. But you don't have to be on their time because they don't care if like they're not going to be here for you when things aren't going well. <laughs> you mean Wolf Blitzer is not going to email me? No, he's me? not going to call me. He's not going to visit me at the hospital. <laughs> I'm sorry you had to throw away draft two. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's trouble times. We got to figure it out. Um, and I don't know. We, and you have to strike some sort of balance. But it's tricky. I think writers are doing good things. I think that we are creating. I, I think that if we're writing the work that really reflects our passions, I think we are doing the work. I I feel like the work that I produce does reflect my resistance. Well, I was going to say. Yeah, I do I was, feel that way. Well, I mean, I was going to say, like Pachinko, for as long of a gestation as it has, uh, as, as long of a gestation as it had, it feels... Uh, in some ways predictive or like of its time, you know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Like there's something very current about, uh, a story of immigrants trying to find their place in a foreign land, the oppression, like all of these things feel very immediate, you know, right. you, you have to, and you couldn't have predicted that we were going to be sitting here with no. president Trump and all of this stuff when you were slaving away. Uh, you if know. anything, I did not predict him. If anything, I never thought that he would win. Even at the day of the election, I kept on staring at that screen going, there must be a mistake. Because I really believe that little graph in the New York Times that said that Hillary Clinton was going to win. Yeah. So I went to the election um, booth and I voted. And I came home and I was like, we're good. <laughs> and then at nine o'clock, my husband's like, no, I think she lost. And I was like, no, no, no. And I stayed there until two in the morning staring at the CNN websites and every other news things like that day, I was not on an information diet. I was just tr trying so hard to find an alternative story. Reality. Yes. Yeah. That was really shocking. However, that said, I do think that the first line of my book is history has failed us, but no matter. I think that's a true statement for all time, because I do think that people like us, we feel like history has failed us, but it isn't. What like do you mean by people like us? I think all of us who feel disillusioned by the rise of a right wing that hates minorities and scapegoats them, it feels like history has failed us. And I think that that doesn't mean that we give up. It means no matter, we're still going to persist. Because in my experience, when I interviewed all these people who were oppressed minorities, they didn't give up and they didn't feel like victims. Their attitude is... This is the way it is, Minjin. I don't know why you seem so worried and upset about it, but I'm going to go do my work. And I thought, oh, okay. There was so much more matter of fact, whether 
whereas I was having an emotional response, their attitude is, oh, no, this is um, something that I have to deal with. I have to protect my children. I have to get a job. I have to um, put food on the table. I have to deal with my landlord. It was just, they're really pragmatic. They're about, in it. They're in it. They were in it. They weren't thinking about it. They were just in it. Whereas I was thinking about it and I was feeling it a lot. Right. And their attitude is, you go do your work and I'll go do my work. And I thought, okay. <laughs> they're like, shut the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. They really, I think I got really checked in my sympathy and in my condescension. Yeah. I, so, I can get like that too, where it's like, I'm feeling and I'm, and it's not that I'm like smug or feel, you know, but there's an element of that where you're like it's the right thing to do or I'm feeling the right thing or this is an injustice and you're internalizing it all and there's guilt in there somewhere and you know what I'm saying? And it's, Sure, it's, because it's, we have it better off. Right. Like my life did seem so much better off than some of the people that I met and I thought, but they seem so much more happy than me. <laughs> and that's, But this was the process that led to the epiphany that you needed to redo the book is that you were talking to these yes. people in Japan, in Japan who were part of the Korean diaspora in yes. Japan generationally. Generationally. And they made it very clear to me that they were not victims, that they were fighters and that they were going to survive and they were going to win on their terms. And I thought to myself, boy, did I get this wrong? Well, thank God you moved to Japan. Thank God. <laughs> Although at the time when I did move there, I didn't want to go. That's the other thing is that, you know, I'm married. I have a child. I mean, he's a, he's a young man now. He's 19. But you do things when you love your family that you don't necessarily want to do. And all those movements and compromises sometimes work out better for you. Just that at the time, I wasn't feeling really thrilled about going there because my book had come out in May of 2007, and I moved in August 2007, so I felt like I wasn't finishing my job with my first book. Right. And did sometimes, you know, like the old, there's always like the old adage about how if you leave your home country and you're expatriated, it tends to give you a clearer view of home. Did your, oh, it's so true. Did your time away, what did your time away teach you about the States? That I really love America that I really love Americans. I love being an American. And although I've always been really grateful to be an American, and I, that sounds kind of like corny, but I am. And maybe it's just because it wasn't something I was given. No, I was given it. I wasn't born with it. But when I went to Asia, not just in Japan, but you go to parts of Asia and you just realize very few are welcoming of foreigners. It's not just Japan. Korea is not welcoming of foreigners permanently. Neither is India, neither is China. Many parts of Europe, like people don't consider foreigners a good thing. Whereas America, for the most part, except recently, these headlines, which I don't recognize, it's, this is, the headlines that I see lately are not, it's not the America that I recognize. It's not the America that I grew up with. But for the most part in America, I've always felt that we believe in integration and assimilation and also that immigrants were just necessary to build this vast huge country which has so much land and natural resources there's Still, a lot to share i mean even now a, there's, there's so of, much land there's a lot of wide open space yeah there's actually so much more than we can even imagine that it's always a little surprising to me that we don't seem to be saying what justin trudeau is saying which is we need you <laughs> we need you to develop this country so that's a little weird yeah i mean and it's also uh, baffling to me 
how people like we're all we're all immigrants. Sure. Like trace it back. Uh, my my great grandparents came over from Sicily and uh, France. And you know what I'm saying? Like, who am I? Who is Donald Trump? He's the son of a Scottish uh, immigrant mother, right? Yeah. So it's like I don't get it. Where where do people? His wife is an immigrant. Yeah. Right. Like, and I don't think and had actually her, didn't mother have her of his children are all immigrants. <laughs> no, except one of them actually, but you know, yeah, not a recent immigrant. It just it just seems uh, insane to me, and I think that uh, you know wherever it is. Like there, there's a sense of scarcity that I think drives it. It's got to be economically driven at least. And well, it's actually connected to what we we're talking about earlier about why writers can't make a living. Technology has really disrupted every single industry. Certain jobs just don't exist anymore. So in order to have us and our children be competitive, they have to become really global citizens. And it's not easy. You actually have to work much, much harder now in certain fields to be at the top of the rung socioeconomically. And I don't think everybody in America can compete. I don't. I think some people don't want to compete, but a lot of them don't necessarily have the opportunities to compete. They may not have the education and the power. And I think people are really, really afraid. Yeah. So whenever people are afraid, they always have to find a group that they have to attack. Right. The irony is, is that if you are going to attack an illegal Mexican immigrant, you didn't want the job that he was doing for you anyway. Yeah, right. However, it might make you feel like you're solving some of your anxiety by getting rid of this alleged labor force. But attacking somebody who's working illegally at your local diner. Or like in a field picking strawberries or which whatever. Which no one will pick. Yeah. Except for some undocumented workers might make you feel somehow that you're saving money because you don't want to provide schools for them or hospitals or somehow your tax dollars are going to the correct way. But I think that connection, that global connection is something that people aren't really talking about. And I do think one thing the media has failed to do is to show the better delineations of having a global economy, the way our tax structure works, the way our money is being spent in the military, like all those connectors, they're not being shown. And I think we're not, it's a complicated, it's a, it's a more complex story to tell. That's the kind of story the news media doesn't like to do. No, they want to have, a, you know? they want to have clickbait. They want to have a yeah. list of 10 things yeah. of how you're going to, how spinach will make you lose weight. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that would be the enemy of the state. Like if like, that's like the one thing I would co-sign with Donald Trump on. Yes. The enemy of the state would be listicles. <laughs> yes. No more listicles no more in listicles. America. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. It's uh. It's difficult, troubling times. And um, I like to think that, as you said earlier, you know, writers doing their work and writing books that speak to their deepest passions, even if it's not like a a, a direct line, like it doesn't have to be overtly political. Like, you know, the work doesn't have to be some sort of uh, diatribe or polemic, but you know, like through narrative, you're telling a story that speaks very much to hot, like hot button political issues right now. And, uh, it's a weird synergy. Yeah. And I also think that we could, this is going to sound very, very California. So, and since I am in California, I could say it, please. I think we have to feed our souls. Yeah, I do. I think we have to nourish parts of our lives well, it goes that back really to, metaphysically, um, keep us going. Well, it's like, uh, we were, you know, uh, the, the this idea that you read the Bible before you work. Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. And you, that's part of your ritual. 
Um, some people like candles. Some people make coffee. Everything. Everybody has something. Yeah. But they, I think people do need quiet. Some people are, you know, using meditation or yoga. But I think there's something that you have to do to sort of quiet mm-hmm. and remember the things that are really important to well, you. But I guess like the the point that I'm driving at, and it just seems connected to that, is the idea that there, you know, you can point to economics, you can point to um, cultural divisions, racism, etc. Like a lot of what ails people, for lack of a better word, I feel like there's a spiritual problem. Oh, absolutely. Like people feel that their lives are meaningless mm-hmm. and they feel like they're just suffering for no reason or they don't have a vocabulary to cope with it. I mean, it's, it's just human existential problems. But I think if you do have something and it doesn't necessarily have to be a religion, it could be books, <laughs> you know, just reading in general or... Um, I don't know. Well, I mean, your world paradigm has to give you a sense of purpose because if everything is just random to you, then it'd be really difficult to accept people who violate meritocracy. I mean, I think the reason why this presidency is so alarming and disturbing for so many people is that so much of it, it's outrageous and so much of it seems so unfair and so much of it seems like there's a kind of dynastic order and corruption that's occurring and no one seems to be saying stop. And I guess we began the story, our conversation with the story of Joseph. And when Joseph actually can face his brothers and say, I don't know why you sold me to slavery, but now I'm the right hand person of Pharaoh and I've actually saved Egypt. And now I can save all these outer line countries because I actually figured out how to um, store all this grain and I can save your lives. He does say, what you had intended for evil, God intended for good. And whether you believe in God or not, that paradigm gives purpose to really horrible stuff in the world. So wait, not... are you saying that Donald Trump Jr. is going to save us? <laughs> no, not Donald Trump. No, he would be like the bad forces that we have to somehow deal with. He, he would be the ones who sold you into slavery. What's the other? It's Donald Jr. And then who else? I forget the other kid. There's Ivanka. And Ivanka. Then, and... What's the other boy? I don't know. I'm, I'm repressing a lot of yeah, it. I, just, I can't remember anything. Um, and you talked earlier about this, uh, you know, this point of Genesis for Pachinko where uh, you're at Yale and you're listening to this lecture and you learn the story of this bullied mm-hmm. child child who jumped off of a building to yes. his death. It's a very minor point in the book, actually. But I'm curious, like, now. you know, not to get too woo-woo, mm-hmm. but I've had writers who... I just had uh, Natasha Dion on the uh, on the show was it last week, and she was talking about how she suddenly had this vision of this young uh, slave girl in Alabama running in a yellow dress, if I'm recalling this correctly. Like she literally had a vision, mm-hmm. and it possessed her to write this novel. Um, do you believe that there, like, it could can a writer be possessed by the spirit of someone who's been lost? Like, is he? speaking through you do you go there um sure why not why not do i think that's happened to me i don't think in a vision kind of way but i definitely have images of things that have happened to me that are definitely woo woo. like what like i had a college roommate and i had a dream about her and i hadn't seen her in 15 years and I don't know what possessed me 
but it was a very, very terrible dream. So I called her after not speaking to her for 15 years. And I said, oh, hey, you know, I'm, it was very awkward. I said, I just called to see if you're okay. And she said that she had a uh, miscarriage the day before. Oh. That was very woo-woo. Yeah. Like stuff like that has happened to me a couple of times. And I kind of think it was too weird. But I don't know why that stuff happens. Do I think it's a prophecy? I don't think so. I don't like people who kind of get up and say things like that because it makes me really uncomfortable. And I'm Presbyterian, which are like the most uptight Protestants you can get. You know, I don't even think Protestants even have feelings. So, <laughs> Presbyterians, most of all, like they're just like right below Episcopalians. So <laughs> um, I don't, but I like this idea. I mean, most of the great artists in the world have believed in the supernatural, especially in the Western canon. And they wrote, actually, for God. Like, Mozart wrote for God. Tolstoy wrote for God. I mean, I don't think I can think of a single 19th century author who didn't believe in God. They may not have been church-going, God-fearing, Bible-thumping Christians, but they didn't imagine a world in which a supernatural um, didn't exist. And because so much of what we do requires so much faith in the that the blank space will somehow be filled with narrative... right. I don't know how people do that without believing in something outside of themselves. Just something bigger. Or just like... Some people worship art. Some people worship romantic love. I've seen that. I've seen a lot of my friends who don't believe in God who really worship romantic love. And that's a really dangerous trajectory because what you're really worshiping is another human being. And they can... Another person can destroy you. Uh, I've seen that a lot. And that's always surprising. So... And yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm with you there. I think like for me, it's about humility. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not saying it, you know, cause I, I am, I have a hard time believing in like a, um, anthropomorphized he God mm-hmm. who's like puppeteering the whole thing, you know sure. what I'm saying? Or like looking down or whatever. Like I don't feel that way, but I do feel a sense of like, I don't know what's going on here. This sure. is incredible. It's also troubling, but it's, in, it's mostly incredible. And, you know, this is clearly beyond my understanding. I have a hard time believing that all of us are an accident. I mean, even Einstein was open to the idea that there could be something else. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually uh, reading a biography of Einstein right now, mm-hmm. which is interesting not only for the uh, spiritual aspects of his life, but uh, I'm also fascinated with the fact that his politics um, mirror the, the present moment. You know, the, like, you know, Germany post-World War One was uh, eerily similar <laughs> in a lot of ways. But what's fascinating is that he was a democratic socialist, but also believed very, very deeply in, um, you know, intellectual freedom, personal liberty. You know what I'm saying? That was, that was very important to him, too. He didn't want to be completely subsumed by the group or the collective or whatever. But he didn't really change his politics his whole life. Uh, and so I'm sort of thinking to myself, well, okay. He's pretty smart. <laughs> might, might, might be worth paying attention to Einstein. He probably, yeah, but he, he didn't do very well in school. Yeah. I mean, you know, and he also didn't uh, have the smoothest personal life either, which is sort of reassuring. It's kind of like when Tiger Woods uh, imploded because he was like so great at what he did. Do you know what I'm saying? It humanizes a person. Do you know when someone's like really good sure. and like from the outside in, they look like, you know, most people I think don't realize. He's a train wreck just like yeah, us. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
That might be my baser instincts, but you know what I'm saying. No, it's not a baser instinct. I actually think that so much of what we do now are curated images of our lives. And it's so false. And I think it's not helpful, really, to any of us to think that it's somehow this really smooth, direct path. Like, And I think it was my arrogance to think that I could be a good student and therefore I would be a good novelist very quickly. Like when I see these young, shiny novelists who are 24 or something, and I kind of think, wow, how do they do that? I'm like, I don't know. But then I kind of think maybe they have been doing it for a really long time. Maybe they're the kind of kids who are writing when they're 12. Right. Like I didn't start writing until much later in my life. So then everybody has a different trajectory, but we don't really know the full story. We just get these sort of media created constructs. Yeah. Well, and, and also speaking of the media, like we love the media loves youth. Yeah. They love, and publishing loves that like wonderkind. And it's, you know, it's fun to write about that person who's 24 and, and has, he might be really good and might be really good. Might have that like 700 page novel, but uh, you know, it's, it's I feel, Go I guess for it. Yeah, I just feel like it's more likely to generate that kind of uh, media buzz, you know, it makes the story so. sexier or something. I think so. And I, I, you know, Frank McCourt's Angela's ashes. Yeah. I remember he was saying, he was quoted in, in an interview saying, I'm really happy that this happened to me so late in my life. I think it was in his early, late sixties when he got the Pulitzer for Angela's ashes. Cause he said, if this happened to me in my youth, I would have been such an asshole. Yeah. And I thought <laughs> there's something to that because I definitely feel the sense of gratitude when people show kindness or support. Like, I just feel like, Oh, I know what it's like not to have it for long stretches of time. Like the desolation. I understand desolation very well. So if I see a little flower, I kind of think, that's awesome. <laughs> a little flower. I mean, I don't need to feel the poppies. Like a uh, little flower is pretty good. Yeah. Well, um, I feel like you have a lot to be proud of. Oh, thank you. And it's a great thank book. Um, so says my father. <laughs> Who is the final word on all books? No, um, I, I really want Mr. Listy's approval. I do. I'm, <laughs> I'm like a regular good girl wanting the dad's approval. It's like, that's me. <laughs> well, uh, it's great to have it featured in the book club and to get to shine a light on it. It's so uh, wonderful to meet you. Oh, thank and, you so uh, much, Brad. I congratulate you. Have fun on tour. Thank you. Enjoy uh, California and uh, best of luck on whatever comes next. Thank you, Brad. All right, folks, if you enjoy this program, you can support this program over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. This is a listener supported program. Your support is crucial to the continued survival of the podcast. So if you'd like to support the show, please do that. You can also write a review of the program over at iTunes. That helps as well. Write a review, helps the show in the rankings, helps it find new listeners. That was Min Jin Lee. Her novel is called Pachinko. It's available now from Grand Central Publishing. You can find her online at minjinlee.com. She's on Facebook. She's on Instagram. Her handle over at Twitter is at minjinlee11. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget this podcast has its own official app. The Other People with Brad Listy app is available for free wherever you get your apps. Go get the app. It's the easiest way to keep track of the show. It's an elegant interface for your mobile device. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. 
Perhaps I'll read your letter on the air and react to it in the monologue. Did you watch the Academy Awards this past weekend? I feel like everybody does. I feel like it's like, it's like the Super Bowl, you know? Even if you're not interested, you watch it as a kind of spectacle or a cultural ritual. And what I found interesting this year, because I tend to watch the Oscars every year, as I tend to watch the Super Bowl, and what I found uh, fascinating is that I, I had seen almost nothing this year, to an unusual degree. The only two movies that I saw that were nominated for Academy Awards were O.J. Made in America, which was excellent, and it was also notably on TV, which is probably why I saw it. <laughs> uh, and then I also saw Manchester by the Sea, which is probably the most depressing movie since Sophie's Choice. Brutal movie. Good movie, but brutal. And I really like uh, Kenneth Lonergan. That movie, You Can Count On Me, is one of my all-time favorites. So, my point is that I'd seen almost nothing. Like, 98% of what was nominated I had not seen. I had no context. And yet, if I'm being honest, I remained emotionally invested in the outcome. I get a little choked up when people get choked up at the Oscars. I'm an empathy crier. I'm a mirror. Whatever you do, I do. If you cry, I cry. If you don't cry, I don't cry. It's not my fault. It's all your fault. It was sort of funny, too, at the end. <laughs> I know it was uh, unfortunate or whatever that Moonlight did not get to give an unfettered acceptance speech. But you have to admit it was sort of funny that they fucked it up. Warren Beatty. I still don't know what happened. Do we have clarity on what happened? Someone just handed him the wrong envelope? Like, how, do you, how does that even happen? Isn't there just one person manning the envelope box? It was the Russians. It's Trump. All right. I'm going to go get a haircut here in a little bit. Feeling weird about it. I feel like it might be premature. Do I really need one? I'm in that kind of mode. Do I really need this? Do I need a haircut? Or do I just want one? Would it be a mistake to get one prematurely? I think my wife thinks I cut my hair too short. And yet, if it starts to get too long, I feel out of control emotionally. I want it to be as low maintenance as possible. I suppose that means I should just shave my head. <laughs> 